You can see why a company like ITOS might want to take a minute, um, take a pause and just consider how to proceed with its Tidget pipeline because, you, you know, trial results like this can have a serious impact. That's my colleague, James Waldron, a staff writer here at Fierce Life Sciences. Later, we'll hear more from him about Roche's failed high-risk bet on an anti-Tidget cancer drug. I'm Teresa Carey, and this is The Top Line from Fierce Biotech, Fierce MedTech, and Fierce Pharma. This episode is brought to you by GoodRx and RBC Capital Markets. Today is Friday, May 20th, and well, we're feeling pretty good here at Fears, having just had our first in-person get-together. It feels like a real milestone, but we'll save that for later. In the meantime, stick with us. We've got all the biopharma and medtech industry news you need. The FDA issued an emergency use authorization for a new combination test from LabCorp that looked for COVID, the flu, and RSV in a single nasal swab. Here's Andrea Park. If you're anything like me, when you start to sniffle or get a little tickle in your throat, your mind immediately jumps to COVID-19. One rapid test later, and you discover it's not COVID, but more likely just a cold or seasonal allergies. COVID symptoms used to be more distinct. But as the virus has evolved, its warning signs have started looking similar to a handful of other common conditions. That's where combination diagnostics come in. These are tests that look for any number of infections in a single sample, from COVID to the flu. The FDA has already issued emergency use authorizations for a few of these, including tests from Abbott, Perkin-Elmer, and Cepheid. But while all of those tests have to be prescribed by a doctor, there's a new test that can be sold directly to consumers. It was developed by LabCorp, and it tests for COVID, RSV, and two types of flu, all with just one nasal swab. The FDA authorized that test this week. Soon, you'll be able to buy the test kit in stores and online. Jeff Shuren from the FDA said the agency's latest authorization brings us one step closer to tests for these viruses entirely at home. It's been hard, nearly impossible for researchers to get their hands on supplies of Paxlovid, Pfizer's COVID-19 pill. Having samples for research could help them improve the drug's effectiveness, but Pfizer isn't sharing. Staff writer Zoe Becker has more. Pfizer is reportedly keeping its blockbuster COVID-19 pill Paxlovid all to itself, in terms of research supplies anyway. The company has denied requests for steady supplies of the drug. They also haven't started or participated in any combination trials. Viruses can become resistant to certain drugs as they evolve. Many believe COVID's resistance to Paxlovid is just a matter of time. It happened with HIV. The virus became resistant to treatments until drug combinations were introduced in the 90s. Researchers want to get their hands on Paxlovid so they can work on drug combinations. Pfizer said they are monitoring mutations of the virus and will design second-generation drugs based on their findings. But many researchers say this isn't enough. We need drug combinations. Virologist Stephen Poliak said that putting multiple drugs together is like hitting the virus factory at two different points in the assembly line. Pfizer CEO Albert Borla said that the combination studies might make sense at some point, but it's not an immediate priority. The company believes the chances of resistance are low. Why have three names when you can just have three letters? Well, Glasgow SmithKline has come to that conclusion. Here's Ben Adams to tell us more. Apple, Tesla, Samsung, Twitter. The tech world knows how to do short, sharp names, and GlaxoSmithKline has been paying attention. 
One of the longest names in Big Pharma is no more and has gone the way of IBM. From now on, GlaxoSmithKline will be known as GSK, much to the relief of this journalist's fingers. What's prompted the change? Simplicity. Staff has already called the company GSK and let's face it, it's a lot easier to say than GlaxoSmithKline. This also follows on from the example of French rival Sanofi, which earlier this year ditched the Pasteur and Genzyme names to become simply Sanofi. So this may, let's give a British cheers for GSK. Tidgets were once hailed as the future of immuno-oncology. But there's recently been two clinical trial failures from Roche. And that's raised the question of whether Big Pharma has bet on the wrong horse. We're going to take a short break, and after that, we'll hear more from Fierce's Annalie Armstrong and James Waldron on Roche's failed anti-tidget cancer drug. As a biopharma professional, you know how difficult marketing your drug has become. Well, GoodRx is here to help. GoodRx is a better way to reach the right audience at the right time. Your brand can connect with millions of qualified patients and providers during the most pivotal moments in their healthcare journey. With over 20 million monthly users, GoodRx provides a trusted platform to help your brand build awareness, offer better access, and remove barriers to adherence. Learn more about the benefits of GoodRx at www.goodrx.com solutions. We are here today to talk about Roche's Tidget drug. We had some big news last week with a, what I believe is a second clinical trial failure. So James, what happened? Roche has got this Tidget drug, Tiragoyumab. Um, there's a lot of high hopes, you know, put, put onto this drug. And yeah, experienced its second phase three failure uh, last week. It was in non-small cell lung cancer. And the drug failed to show that a combination of it with Roche's cancer drug, Tocentric, um, led to an increase in progression-free survival when compared to Tocentric alone. And this comes off the back of another phase three trial with Tiragolumab and a checkpoint inhibitor which reported similar findings back in March. We are still waiting to see the full data for this latest trial, but it definitely wasn't the news that anyone was hoping for. And I think that was reflected in the decision by ITOS, who have their own digit in development in a number of studies in collaboration with GlaxoSmithKline, who announced a couple of days after the Roche news that, well, they didn't say they're putting the brakes on any of their trials. They did say they're assessing how to proceed. So I think that gives a sense that, you know, people are definitely looking intently at uh, what Roche has announced so far. So what exactly is a TIGIT? The theory of TIGITs, and this is backed up by some early evidence, is that targeting the TIGIT immune receptors can enhance the effects of PD-1 and PD-L1 checkpoint inhibitors. So in other words, this potentially offers a way of improving big pharma's arsenal of blockbuster cancer drugs. And, you know, maybe even more importantly, potentially extending the shelf life of these drugs, which is especially important when you consider that a lot of these big blockbusters will be coming off patent in the next few years and starting to face generic competitors for the first time. So, you know, if these drugs are proven to be effective, you know, we could be looking at the future of immuno-oncology. Who's developing these drugs? What kind of names do we have in the hunt here? Well, it's more like who's not developing them. You know, aside from Roche and GSK, who we've mentioned, you've got the likes of Gilead, uh, Novartis with China's Beijing, uh, Bristol-Myers Squibb, just to name a few. And there's some really big money invested here. Like G GSK's ITO deal is worth over $2 billion, including milestones and upfront fees. 
And Bristol Myers has about $1.56 billion tied up with a genus for a solid tumor and colon cancer collaboration. So this is huge. Uh, and then there's Novartis and Beijing who are working together on lung cancer and solid tumors in a $1 billion deal. And then Roche Tiragolumab was actually developed in-house and they're not alone in kind of having some internal science. CGen and both Merck and Co. And Germany's Merck have also developed some in-house candidates as well. So with all of these companies in the running here, how worried should they be after what happened with Roche? And that's a really good question. And, and that's a really good point about all the big money that's riding on this. I think we estimated that when you, route, when you add up all those big pharma deals you know, and you include the milestone payments, et cetera, you're looking at something like $6 billion potentially riding on Tidgets. So you know, there's a lot of serious money and there's a lot of interest. And then, of course, you've got companies like Merck, who sees Tidgets as a potentially way to extend the life of its blockbuster K-Truda franchise. So, you know, if Tidgets work in combination with K-Truda, then that's a way of extending the, that cancer franchise beyond the drug's patent expiry, which is really going to start to hit home in about 2028. In terms of how worried companies should be, Tidgets are broadly split into two groups. So we won't go into the science now, but one set of Tidgets, including Roche's drug, are called FC competent, and another group is called FC incompetent. So you could argue that maybe those companies working on FC incompetent Tidgets might feel that they're slightly less exposed to Roche's results. But ultimately, there's not really any clinical data yet for the second group. So it's all very hypothetical at this stage. And regardless, you know, like you said, with the amount of money involved, Big Pharma has a lot riding on this. One way I got a sense of that was in, in the piece for Fierce Biotech last week, I spoke to SVB securities analyst Dana Graybosch, and we gamed out kind of where the sector goes from here. And I thought it was really interesting that she said, while there's cause for concern at the moment, we really do need to see some proper data before anyone gets too worried. But, you know, when I asked for a worst case scenario, she said, if Tidgets do continue to really struggle long-term in these in late-stage trials, then of course you could see biotechs and investors ult ultimately abandon the space. We talked about some of these deals being, you know, big pharmas partnering with smaller biotechs. So what's the impact on some of these smaller companies that have developed these drugs and brought them forward to work with big pharmas? It, you kind of feel it's those biotechs who often, you know, develop these uh, Tidgets initially in the first place, who are really going to get burned by any kickback up um, to Tidgets as a result of these trials. So a couple of examples, in the, in the light of the Roche findings, I checked out the share prices of ITOS, who, as we mentioned, is working with GSK on Tidget, and Arcus Biosciences, who are working with Gilead. And, I, and it was interesting and maybe a bit worrying to notice that in both cases, their share prices had dropped by over 25% in the, the wake of the Roche news. So you can see why a company like ITOS might want to take a minute, um, take a pause and just consider how to proceed with its Tidget pipeline because, you, you know, trial results like this can have a serious impact. So what's next? What is Roche going to do? Well, in terms of Roche, they still need to release the full data from their trial of Tiragolimab. And I think they're planning to do that at a coming medical conference, although we don't have any firmer time frame at this stage. And then also from Roche, they're going to have readouts of the same drug in trials of cervical and esophageal cancers coming down the line. So we'll want to look at that. And the other big data point we'll be keeping an eye out for is Gilead, 
who have a phase two trial of their TIGIT, which is a collaboration with Ar Arcus, which is due to read out in the second half of the year. So we'll want to be keeping a close eye on both of those to get a better sense of where TIGITs go from here. Evanos Medical was hit with a class one recall rating from the FDA. It was for a device that meant to help improve how feeding tubes are inserted. But it has, in fact, been linked to 23 patient deaths and 60 injuries since 2015. Here's Andrea Park to tell us what happened. Avanos Medical must have broken a mirror because the device maker has had seven unlucky years. Capping it all off is a major safety warning from the FDA, a Class 1 recall label. That's the FDA's most serious rating, reserved for safety issues with the highest risk of injury or death. The warning applies to a system that helps place a feeding tube into a patient's stomach or small bowel. It's called the Cortrec 2 Enteral Access System, and it uses an electromagnetic probe, external receiver, and display monitor to give doctors a live feed as they insert the feeding tube. The whole point of the system is to help doctors place feeding tubes more accurately and with fewer complications. But in fact, the opposite has been true. For the past seven years, according to the FDA, the Cortrec system has been linked to 60 injuries and 23 deaths. Those injuries include respiratory failure, collapsed lungs, infections, and holes in the walls of the lungs, esophagus, and bowels, all of which can happen if a feeding tube is inserted incorrectly. In March, Avanos began a recall of more than 600 of the systems. For this recall, instead of returning the system, Avanos is asking hospitals to update how they use it. They're asking doctors to plan in advance how they'll place a feeding tube, rather than diving in and relying solely on the Cortrac system to guide them. Eli Lilly's drug Munjaro was approved by the FDA to treat patients with type 2 diabetes. In clinical trials, the drug was more effective than other diabetes treatments. But what does this mean for weight loss? Kevin Dunleavy has the story. Last year, when Novo Nordisk got an FDA approval for Wegovy, there was excitement that a new era had dawned with a drug that could combat obesity. After all, with a way to trigger weight loss, many other conditions could be addressed, like diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and liver disease. Now, less than a year later, the FDA has signed off on a diabetes drug called Munjaro. The drug is produced by Eli Lilly, who says they eventually could sell it as an obesity treatment. And that's what has people excited. A recent study with obese patients showed that a high dose of Munjaro helped study participants lose between 12 and 29 pounds. With 30 million Americans suffering with diabetes, the market is large and it's growing. Evaluate Pharma says the 2026 sales of Munjaro will be 4.9 billion. Analysts at Mizuho say that by 2030, those sales could reach 14 billion. Thanks, Kevin. And just to add to that, in December at an Eli Lilly investment meeting, here's what Chief Scientific Officer Dan Skravonsky had to say. We think that when we look back at the 2020s and 2030s, we'll see this as a time where we started to understand that obesity can be reversed, that this can be treated like a disease. And when we eliminate obesity, we can prevent a huge burden of morbidity and mortality from type 2 diabetes, from cardiovascular disease, from liver disease and, and other ailments. This is going to be a, a major change in public health. Out of nearly two dozen big biopharma companies, more than half generated double-digit revenue growth in the first quarter. Pfizer, Merck, AstraZeneca led the big pharma group, but they couldn't match the eye-popping increases at mRNA stars Moderna and BioNTech. 
Next is Kevin Dunleavy and Eric Saganowski to tell us more, but first, a short break. The fast-moving world of biopharma is transforming at a speed never seen before. Stay ahead of the curve with Pathfinders in Biopharma, a podcast series from RBC Capital Markets that takes you inside the changing dynamics of the sector. Hear from biotech CEOs, venture capitalists, and industry-leading investors and gain the perspectives you need to lead today and to find tomorrow. Visit www.rbccm.com slash biopharma or check out the latest episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your preferred podcast platform. Hey, Kevin. After a busy earnings season, we took a chance to rank the revenue growth numbers at the top pharma companies. These numbers were comparing the first quarter of 2022 versus the first quarter of 2021. We saw growth at a lot of the companies. So can you take a minute to explain your takeaways? Well, I was really struck by the, by the overall growth. I think it was 11 companies that had uh, double digit growth and, uh, in the aggregate, it came to 16% growth over the industry. And that's, that's pretty amazing. But you also have to consider that you look back to the first quarter of 2021, which is what we're comparing this most recent quarter to. And we were still kind of early in that pandemic stage. So I think, you know, these were expected to be pretty high as far as the, uh, the increases. And if you look at the companies at the top, so many of them, it's because of the COVID products that they, that they've had success with. But that also really raises a lot of questions about sustaining that growth going forward. Cause I th- think we're starting to see some of those companies, you know, decline in, in revenue and their guidance for, for what they're going to sell in the next few quarters. Now, if you look at the companies at the top, certainly Moderna, they had more than 200% growth. And that's of course, due to those companies really starting from scratch. Uh, since they were small biotech and it's understandable that they're going to have increases that look so much more than the other companies. A couple other takeaways. You look at the others at the top, Pfizer, AstraZeneca, Merck, GSK, Regeneron, and Lilly, all with 15% growth or more. And again, because of their COVID products, but among those AstraZeneca really stood out to me because they had 56% growth, but of their total quarterly, uh, revenue of 11 billion, only 1.5 billion of that came from COVID products. So that really tells us that, uh, that they're doing really well with a lot of their other drugs in their portfolio and their, so just a, a real complete portfolio that they have, that's contributing to, to their success, not so much the COVID products. How about you, Eric? What stood out to you? That's a good point on AstraZeneca. I hadn't, I hadn't realized exactly how deep their portfolio is. Like you said, we're still seeing strengths from the COVID-19 vaccine and drug companies. Those revenues are going to continue, we're sure, but we're not sure how much. So it'll be interesting to follow over the the rest of the year and beyond um, how much COVID-19 fuels growth. Outside of those companies, I saw GlaxoSmithKline had a really good quarter. Mm -hmm. They delivered 32% growth with a lot of it coming from Shingrix, their shingles vaccine. That launch had kind of stalled during the pandemic because everyone was focusing on COVID-19 vaccine launches. So Shingrix took a backseat. Now that's starting to pick up again. So GlaxoSmithKline might have some tailwinds going forward. Vertex also delivered double-digit growth with their cystic fibrosis business. Mm -hmm. And uh, moving to the bottom of the list, we saw some struggles at other companies. AbbVie delivered 4% growth 
and they're losing their biggest drug. They're losing exclusivity for their biggest drug next year. So we'll have to see if their, you know, their next generation drugs, Rinvoke and Skyrizi, can fill the gap from Humira biosimilars. And we've covered Biogen a lot in the last year. They delivered one of the only sales declines at 7%, and they aren't getting any help from their Alzheimer's drug, Aduhelm. So they're planning a CEO switch, and it's going to take a lot for them to turn the ship around. Aside from the year-over-year comparisons, you found another interesting comparison in your story. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, instead of looking at the first quarter of 21 and the first quarter of 22, I thought to look at the fourth quarter of 21 and the first quarter of 2022. And what we found comparing them, that only four companies had, had growth. And that was shocking to me at first because we're used to seeing these, you know, the revenues grow, especially during this pandemic period. But it turns out that that's pretty common to go from fourth quarter to the first quarter and for companies to, uh, to not be able to sell nearly as many of their drugs. Investors always refer to this as headwinds and headwinds can account for a lot of that, you know, decline of growth. But I think in this case, headwinds can't really account for all the differences that we saw between companies, especially like Sanofi, Sanofi, I'm sorry, AbbVie, Teva. Uh, Santa Fe, for example, had a 9% increase from Q1 to Q1 of 21 and 22, but then they had a 20% decrease from Q4 of last year to this most recent quarter. That can't really be explained away by headwinds. And another thing I looked at was market cap. It's an indicator of investor confidence. And of the top 20 companies, 14 have had market cap growth during the first quarter. So that's a pretty good indicator of a lot of confidence uh, that the industry is going in the right direction. Uh, among the leaders in that market cap group were AbbVie with 20%, Vertex, Vertex with 19%, AstraZeneca with 19%. And then some of the companies with COVID products at the other end of the spectrum had market cap uh, falls. Uh, Moderna, 33% drop beyond tech with a 33% drop, Gilead with a uh, 21% drop, and Pfizer with a 12% drop, all with uh, heavily dependent on those COVID products. And we saw their, their stock soar up during the pandemic, so it makes sense that as you know, expectations become more dim that their stock would go down. On the headwinds thing that you mentioned, I will say that sometimes drug purchasing uh, happens in bulk. So say a vaccine company like Sanofi, they sell flu vaccines and a lot of times those will come in the, in the second half of the year. Mm -hmm. So sometimes their, their first quarter might be light for that reason. Um, another reason that the headwinds might occur, as you were saying, is that, um, if purchasers know that a drug price increase is coming at the start of the year, they might buy in advance at the end of the year. So that pushes their sales towards Q4. After, after reporting all of this, are there any trends that you'll be looking forward to following for the rest of the year? The erosion of the COVID products is really interesting to me. I think that you're starting to see the company's guide to uh, decreases in sales compared to what they were guiding to, uh, you know, in previous quarters. I think the diabetes market is going to be really interesting, especially now with uh, Lilly challenging Novo Nordisk. Uh, they just got an approval for Munjaro, their diabetes drug. And one more interesting thing to look at, I think, is Bayer. We're 
we've been reporting so much bad news, investor upheaval, uh, pressure for them to divest, but uh, the company's top line is very healthy. They had 14% growth in the first quarter, although only 3% of that growth was in the pharma sector. So uh, a lot is going on there with Bayer. Uh, their crop science sector is doing really well, and that spurred most of the growth, but uh, still kind of an unstable situation there. The Fierce Newsrooms are buzzing with a momentous event that we haven't seen in years. Here's Fraser Kansteiner with the announcement. Fierce has confirmed many of its staff are indeed real humans. A dozen journalists met for the first time last month, not through a Zoom screen, but alive and in the flesh in Manhattan. Annalie stood up and I was like, wow, you're really tall. Annalie was way taller than I expected. <laughs> I'm the shorty. I'm not the shortest person in the world, but I'm not that tall. I guess we determined that I was like the tallest person in the entire team. Fact checkers confirmed that photos of the event are, in fact, real. But whether Fierce's employees outside the northeastern United States are actual people remains inconclusive. Our reporters were stepping into the physical newsroom for the first time or reuniting after two years of virtual morning pitches, and the ability to coordinate and complain in person was refreshing. One writer forgot they were no longer in the privacy of their own home and around 4 p.m. shouted, do I have to write this? One of the difficulties of the pandemic is kind of leaving behind a classic newsroom, which is usually full of energy and laughter and also just commentary about the news. To have that be restored for a few days was restorative. <laughs> it's just, it's so chaotic. I got to yell at Max over a bank of computers. It was really nice to just be human. The reunion culminated in a debate about whether Star Wars is better than Dune, which really isn't a debate at all despite the claims of a certain editor whose name rhymes with schmanily. So I very stupidly, apparently, commented that I felt there were a lot of Star Wars vibes in Dune, and I was very quickly corrected by everyone that there are Dune vibes in Star Wars. Not a big enough nerd to hang out with the fierce crew, apparently. I'm very torn. I know everybody will hate me for not picking a side. Star Wars all the way. Whatever. I stand by my comments now. Easy answer for me. I haven't seen Dune yet. I haven't read Dune. I'm also a big Star Wars fan. I forget whether one of my birthdays was Attack of the Clones or um, the, the one before that. Before the week was out, they immortalized the meeting with professional headshots. One by one, the team stepped away from breaking news to go under the makeup brush, sacrificing entire minutes of reporting to hide the scars of a deadline-based life. And the photographer, in a totally not weird way, to be clear, uh, said that I had big forearms and that they were good forearms for tattoos, which is horror to my uh, Jewish parents' ears. Well, let me get you some measurements because I guess I have big forearms. The team looked good in the end although more than a few wore the wrong clothing. Apparently, loud patterns were a no-no. That's it for The Top Line. I'm senior producer Teresa Carey. I wasn't in Manhattan, but I'm also a human. Trust me. Our sound engineer is Caleb Hodgson. You can find out more about these topics in our show notes at FiercePharma.com. Look for podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe to The Top Line on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you listen. And that's the bottom line from The Top Line.